You're listening to TFM. Want to join in the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode? Join the Babel Conference, our listeners' discussion group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field, and we'll look forward to seeing you there. I'm here to talk to you about the Avengers Initiative, and with me to talk about the Assembled Avengers is John Mills. Indeed, I greet you from my uh, helicarrier, which is floating over the improbably wide Potomac River here outside of uh, Washington, D.C., right here in uh, uh, Northern Virginia. So, hello. Hello there. I'm tracking everybody. I'm targeting many, many people. Are you on the list? I don't know. You could be. So that's what that shadow is. Yes. Yes, it is. Sorry. I'm coming over to uh, uh, to Castle okay. Rushing over there. I'm going to be visiting. All right. Yes. Well, um, well, as I worry for my life, uh, before we get started, just want to thank everybody for joining us here on Assembling Avengers. Of course, we're in the 602 Club feed, and we'd appreciate it if you would subscribe so you get the show as soon as it drops. Uh, and of course, we've got all the shows here uh, that you can get in the 602 Club feed. Uh, so many, of course, with the main show, and then you know uh, we've also got Snyder Cuts. We've got a special episode of that coming up here soon, so look for that. And we'd appreciate a star rating and review. If you happen to be on Apple Podcasts, hit us up with one. It helps people find the show. It helps the show grow. And so, uh, and we even read those reviews out on the show. And so we really appreciate that. Uh, you can also find us all over the place on social media. Uh, we'd appreciate a follow over on Twitter at the 602 Club. We're on Instagram at the 602 Club TFM. We're also on Letterboxd. Find us over there under the 602 Club. You can see all of the movies we've done. We've even got some great lists going on for the different shows that we're doing, too, for a bonus episode, so you can find those easily. Uh, also, you can find us online at trek.fm. You can see everything that we've done there on the 602 Club, as well as our bonus shows as well. We're on Facebook at facebook.com slash trek.fm, and then there's also the listeners only discussion group that you can go over to and join listeners all over the world to talk to on the Babel Conference on Facebook. And last but not least, uh, we'd like to ask you to check us out on Patreon so you can make sure that all this content can keep coming to you. Um, go to patreon.com slash trackfm and see how you can be part of our team. We're really hoping to be able to grow the network, and we can't do it without your help. So again, that's patreon.com slash trackfm. So, John, uh, you know, I looked, and there is not a lot of preamble to this movie in the sense that there were no directors hired and then fired or creative differences. There's none of that. Um, and so I wanted to kind of go back to the beginning uh, in the sense of where we kind of started with our our assembling Avengers formula, which is, did you see Captain America, the Winter Soldier, in the theater? You bet I did. Back when the times were still creeping up toward... Uh, sundown the day before, uh, almost like a Sabbath definition of a movie premiere. We went from midnight, then we had the the 9 and the 10 o'clock preview night openings. And this was one where in Northern Virginia, I went with friend of the show, Craig, and we sat down and we watched that in the movie theater. And I remember the seats we were in. I remember one of our longest standing jokes was from that movie and from a reaction from somebody in the audience because it was really, it, it was so charmingly disarming uh, how happy this this fan got at one point in the movie. Um, and uh, we, you know, saw it in the movie theater. And I remember at the time feeling like I had finally seen something that, on some sort of fundamental level resonated with me in this Marvel universe. This is probably the moment where, you know, we've been going through, I saw this in the theater. I didn't see that in the theater. I saw this in the theater. I didn't see that in the theater, back and forth, back and forth. I would definitely say, and I'm tipping my hand here. I know walking out of the movie theater the first time on this, this was the moment where seeing Marvel movies in the movie theater became a thing for me. This was the commitment. Okay. It wasn't Avengers, which I liked plenty. This was the one where I said, okay, I can't let any of these slip me by at this point. What about, uh, what about you? 
Yeah, I I think I really like the way you said that because I remember seeing this in the theater and I just uh, what I remember the most is when the movie ended and just feeling so good. In the sense that I had this feeling like I had just seen something special. Yeah. When it came to the comic book genre uh on film, you know, and and I think you know, having been spoiled in the sense of, you know, DC had given us the Dark Knight trilogy and those movies, you know, being phenomenal, uh, you know, and, and in all honesty, none of the Marvel movies had lived up to that level. True. Uh, and and so coming out of this, and, and yeah, I guess I'm tipping my hand, but I mean, it's going to be hard not to, I think, with the conversation for this movie, at least from my perspective, which is... This movie just felt like something that Marvel hadn't done before, which is to really, I think, you know, one of the things that you, and I was thinking back to this as I was rewatching this, you mentioned in Avengers, you were like, what is this movie about? And this movie seems to be about so many things, and yet none of them feel um, fractured from the whole. They all feel cohesive to create uh, like this massive thematic question, which is really the struggle of this man at a time trying to find his way in a universe that is completely different than than when he left, mm-hmm. and and having I think a morality structure which is diametrically opposed in many ways to everyone around him, um, and I, I just. It is the point to which I think, like you said, I thought, okay, Marvel has hit their stride with this movie. Like, Mm -hmm. it wasn't Avengers for me. It was this. And it's where they merged, I felt like, great thematic, serious content with also still being able to have fun. Because there's some great fun moments in this movie, but they didn't usurp the movie in any way, shape, or form. They only, I think, helped the film. Uh, and, and in many ways, just kind of continuing some of the the humanity of these characters. Um, so, yeah, in a long-winded way to say, yeah, I came out of this film like you from the theater being like, okay, Marvel's on a whole other level than I thought they were going to be at. And what's interesting with this rewatch is, you know, let me let me come at it from two two angles here the the first being you're you're right you know it's the man out of time it's there's nobody but cap that's going to pick this fight basically and i guess you could say it makes sense that natasha would pick this fight alongside him considering she comes from the you know the the failed soviet state right that lived its life through uh you know the old saying from the kgb um show me the man i'll show you the crime basically the belief that We'll we'll make somebody guilty of something if we need to. So it, it actually makes a lot of sense to put Natasha with him in this movie. And yep. what's fascinating fascinating as well is that he has to deal with he has to live with the fact that it was in a sense his victory was nothing. Like you know, his big sacrifice to stop Hydra didn't stop them. And that is a really, that's a really heavy thing uh, to throw on it and to have that worked into everything. But I think also what's remarkable on this rewatch is there's nothing particularly dynamic about the shots. Some of the effects don't age particularly well, uh, but it's really the, the script and the editing that real i mean that's not to take anything away from the performances but those are the two things that really go through it's there's no dynamic shot structure there's nothing that's a particular jump out moment like there there's even in that establishing shot of the ship as the camera is going over it there's even this misjudgment with the cg that usually you do a sweeping shot like that to convey motion. And then you discover that the ship is anchored and it's like, well, that was an odd way to approach the ship to show cap getting on, but okay. Um, But this is definitely one of those ones where 
the whole is much greater than the sum of its parts. And one of the reasons I'm coming at it from that angle is that this movie has been, I would say, universally praised, especially by the fan base. So I actually, we usually save this for later in the episode. I want to bring it forward a little bit and say we know a lot of the reasons that people love this film. But how would you approach this film if you encountered somebody who didn't love it, who thought that it it was okay at best, would you be able to pick some moments here and say, okay, well, I could see why somebody might deduct points for this or that. I would have a really hard time with that because I, I think one of the things you were, as you were talking, I was, I was, I was, you know, really listening intently and just kind of thinking about and pondering what you're saying about the idea of, you know, how the script and everything and that it works with the performances and all here and I think it has a lot to do with the direction, um, this film working. But I, I think what happens is that this is one of the very few Marvel movies that sets a very consistent tone mm. and never really deviates from that tone. You know, they they everything here works to s- support the tone that, that the movie begins with, which is... I I would say um, this is the first time since Hulk to which we're really taking uh, some serious subject matters and we're going to deal with them seriously without making a lot of jokes or supplanting the thematic elements that we're going for with jokes or the seriousness. We're, this this movie never stops being serious for any for for one moment really you know uh, and and I think it's that that tonality being very even keeled with the same tone throughout the whole thing that really makes this successful so i i would struggle i i guess i would love to talk to somebody who doesn't really love this movie and figure out what it is that doesn't work for them because to me i i would struggle to see this not working and see what what's interesting is that iron man 3 all of the movies that we've gotten so far in phase 2 we're in phase two, right? Yeah, phase two. Mm-hmm. Iron Man three is PTSD, but it's Tony Stark dealing with it. So the jokiness, that's his character. It right. makes sense for Tony to be that way. It's his defense mechanism. And then in the moments where he is, he lets his guard down. It makes it even more mm-hmm. effective. Thor try Thor the Dark World, I think, was trying for this in a lot of ways, but we both agree didn't succeed on a lot of levels. Right. Right. What's interesting is I think that this is a natural offshoot of doing an Iron Man 3 type of examination of the after effects of a, a sacrificial life, but with a more serious character. Mm-hmm. There's humor in here, but to your point sure. about the tone, it's so much more toned down and so much more natural to everything. And I think mm-hmm. that that is definitely in part thanks to Chris Evans bringing what he brings mm-hmm. to this character. There is a consistency to cap. You believe in cap. Right. Um, and I also think something that really helps it. I think Anthony Mackie is great as Falcon in here. Mm-hmm. I really liked meeting Sebastian Stan as the winter soldier, but here it is. Finally, the movie, this is the movie where I really, Doug Black Widow as a character. Mm-hmm. Natasha finally gets a real role in these movies, mm-hmm. a substantial role. She's not just a sidekick. She's not just yep. whatever Whedon did with her. She is a full-on, fully developed, deep character. And it was, a, especially this time, a treat to see Scarlett Johansson get the opportunity to lean into her character choices and I think that that really pays off uh, in the movie. I, I'm glad that you brought her up uh, as a as a point in this film to which really helps it move forward and I think work because I think you're absolutely right in that you know her choices of playing this person who her personality 
and in in many ways she has some of some of Tony's same um personality traits she's overconfident she seems in many ways uh supremely confident in her abilities but we see why in all of these situations um and that her, her humor is her coping mechanism uh her making light of things is her coping mechanism for a life to which we get the sense of which was horrible you know before she came here uh and became an avenger and, and chose this life and so I think that really works, but I also think what makes her the perfect choice to to be with Steve is that she is diametrically opposed to him and his way of doing things and his thought process and, and basically even who he is as a person and his morality – She's the complete opposite. You know, that that scene in the truck, I think, is their best scene together because they have this very honest conversation. And, and you know, she says, you know, to you know, the truth isn't all things to all people at all times, Steve. That's her that's her motive op that's her modus of operandi, right? Yeah. That's her MO. Steve is completely the opposite person of her. The truth is all things to all people at all times for him regardless of the fact that he's been brought forward in time and everything's changed, he still believes that. And that's one of the reasons to which, you know, we have the discussions here in this movie about like freedom and people being able to choose and doing what is right. Um, and uh, maybe even not even knowing sometimes what that is in this kind of world. Um, <laughs> Listen, struggling with that. So, I mean, I, I think you're absolutely right. You know, like, Scarlett Johansson's this is her best performance in any Marvel movie, uh, at least to this point. And I, I, I would venture to say it may be her best performance ever. And part of it is because I think she's stretched here as a person and as an actress to really move as a character uh, and make again make some choices as this character and kind of like basically stick by them. You know, and um, and I think what I found is that I love her with Steve. Like, I want her and Chris Evans to have more movies together as these two characters because they play so well. Um, And I think a part of that does happen to be the way in which they kind of deal a little bit with. Steve probably finding her somewhat attractive um and that and they're just kind of having this weird relationship is it brother and sister is it more you know like where is their really but at the same time they there's the there's a, a respect right when they again they have that relationship where they have that conversation in the truck where they talk about what he needs and he's like I just need a friend mm-hmm. you know I just need some ba- somebody basically that I can trust and and she chooses to be that and I think What's fascinating is to watch that relationship continue, especially as we work our way towards civil war and what happens there. Like this is a fascinating relationship to to continue all the way through Endgame, and it starts here and it's phenomenal. Like I just I I couldn't agree with you more. Scarlett Johansson knocks it out of the park in this role, and I if there's anything about it, I and I'm gone on for long enough. But what I'm I'm what I'm trying to say is I just wish there was more of this in the mcu especially with these two characters together yeah i i agree Um, in a lot of ways iron man 3 and even more so winter soldier become frustrating for me because there are moments in this mythology where i feel like i was promised something like this more of this basically and i don't think that that was really delivered consistently. And I don't mean that everything needs to be a a really heavy spy thriller or emotional drama. Obviously, we're dealing with comic book movies here, so the spectacle part of it is important, and we have to get all of those sorts of things. You know, you have your thrilling action sequences. I think his escape from the Triskelion is wonderful. I remember being in the movie theater as he's piecing together the setup while he's uh, you know, in getting boxed in, in the elevator. Yes. And just that moment where he says, before we start, does anybody want to get off? And then the fight just starts. Like it's such 
a perfect moment. And it's such a it's such a Captain America moment. I'm going to give you one last chance to reconsider what you're about to do, because this I'm going to have to hurt people. Um, what I think also is that this is buoyed by the fact that Sam Jackson finally has something to do other than be cloak and dagger above it all guy he's he's personally emotionally invested in this arc because nick is just as much betrayed as cap is he realizes he's been yes yes yeah and so i think that's an incredibly well done uh move and i usually hate the fake death it usually drives me nuts i want to get your thought i think it works perfectly fine here do you agree or do you think they should have left Fury dead? Was this their escape moment with Fury where they could have walked away from it and been done? Or like me, were you happy to see that Fury pulled it out? What I thought was really interesting about them choosing to not let him be dead and and have it be faked was that in many ways he he kind of gets a taste of what it's like to be Steve, you know? Um, to kind of come back, like Steve comes back and realizes the world isn't anything like he hoped it probably would be when he saved it. And, you know, Fury, like you said, has that exact same moment in the sense that like everything that he's built and fought for has been a lie. He didn't even realize it. it. Like everything he thought that he was building and everything he thought was here to do good has 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 turned out to be a lie and part of you know some secret organization's plan and he's just been a pawn in it. Like what a terrible terrible thing to find out, you know, and I think like you said you you really give him as a character something else to do, but at the same time I think him coming back and that moment when he says to Cap where he's like you're calling the shots now, Cap. You know, he realizes maybe that He's been subtly influenced by that way of doing things, and that way of doing things has come from the Hydra way of doing things, and he doesn't even realize it until it's too late. And 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 therefore, again, like this is where I think we actually continue the theme from Avengers, where the, you talk about this idea of I think we need a little bit of old fashioned. It's Steve's old fashioned values and belief system to which Carrie on forward here and i think by allowing fury to stay alive we actually get to go on an interesting journey with him as well and so i heartily agree with you that keeping him alive was the right choice because this is a character which to which i think continues to offer us hopefully something in the future of the marvel universe and and so I'll be interested with you to kind of track this and see, you know, do they legitimize continuing to have Fury? Um, Do they really make good on the promise of, you know, by him at the end of the movie? You know, he burns his safe place, you know, his 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 safe house, you know, and he he walks away, even throws away the eye patch, you know. So um, I, I think that makes for an interesting choice because in many ways he's at the same place that Captain America is, which he's trying to rebuild his life after everything has fallen apart. And that's an interesting mirroring. I also think that it is unfortunate that one of the coolest moments having to do with Fury is undone by a later movie having to do with his eye. Mm. And it Mm. really... Watching it here, I was so back into it. Uh, yeah, oh, that's right. Oh, I lost it when I trusted somebody. And oh, and, you know, it, it, I've always got my eye open. And like, it's his bad eye. That's the retinal scan. Mm-hmm. And it's like, so, you know, the the milky white scarred eyeball. And it's so cool. And then trying, knowing now that I have to shut off that part of my brain sure. that knows what they did with that later. Sure. Cheap it like I, I can't let them take that moment away from me. Mm-hmm. It's such an expertly yep. handled moment. And while I said earlier, and some people might take it as a, a slight, but the shots aren't really that dynamic. The direction is great. The editing is great. 
but it's not i'm not seeing anything with the camera that's wowing me like oh my i'm not watching like a, a deacons or a richardson movie oh, right you know yeah. yeah like that sort of thing i'm watching something that's very competently made but not you know terribly dynamic in the shot selection however there are moments like the eye reveal where it is perfectly done. It's one of those moments where you say, okay, that is a perfect shot here. That is exactly the right angle, the right camera movement, the right placement. Everything about that was just right. And I know I'm going on about an eye, but it really was just such a fantastic reveal. The The only thing still talking about that, you know, the, the way they shot it, the only thing that I didn't care for this time and i don't know if it's because it didn't play as well on a tv whether i was tired uh, something like that but i don't like what they did with like the shutter speed and the the way that the camera moves in the battle scenes too much it made it there was too much motion in the Hmm, camera as opposed to motion in frame like, it, it almost seemed like they were trying to imbue extra energy into the action sequence. Okay. Like, the fight on the bridge. Right, It's right. like they're trying to imbue more energy into it than was actually there. I don't like it when they do that. Um, oddly, that didn't seem to be an issue with the helicarrier fight at the end. So, like, I would have expected right, right. it there, but it was more disciplined there, I suspect, mm-hmm. because they had so many effects in those shots. They had True. to... Yeah keep it contained otherwise it's going to look like a michael bay transformers movie right you know that's interesting that you say that because i don't know if i had i don't i still don't have that issue with it and one of the things that i actually really appreciate about the action of the film is how i felt like they tried as crazy as the action gets even at the end with the helicarrier stuff it all feels so intimate and visceral like, it feels like real action, you know, like, uh, you know, I think after you get down um, from the overpass and they're having the fight in the street, you know, and that that mono a mono fight between Bucky and Cap. It's really, really brutal. Like, they don't really pull a lot of punches um, in, the, in that and I also I, I also appreciated that about the beginning on the Lemurian Star when Cap just comes down there and he is just like you. What they really did, I think, in this movie was to show how strong Cap was at the beginning, like against yeah. just normal people. So that when you got to the fight with Bucky, you realize that you are fighting two super soldiers against each other. Oh, yeah. No, but, so, but I mean, like that stuff I thought was really well. And in fact, that opening scene, like I just every time he like knocks somebody off the boat and they just go flying, like I just laugh every time. It's so great. Right. But but that's what I'm saying is like if you look at the 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 shots in that opening and in the ending and then you look at that overpass fight, there just is um Sure. It's so handheld. Like it's, it, they took mm-hmm. handheld and just amped yep. it up. Yep. Um, I will also say that while they did a pretty great job of rooting what they needed to actually in DC, you know, whether by trickery or actually filming here or there or replacing a road sign or something like that. Right. It, it works for the most part, but that overpass scene was another that that was one where the audience in northern virginia chuckled because it's like yeah that's not a bus stop in dc that's that's not what that looks like guys uh it's just yeah. it, that you know, happens it was just, when they do that in seattle all the time in films yeah. so i get you yeah I, it, it was as bad but it was as bad as um that last day of the condor or whatever that bruce willis did and they with richard Gere, and they run into the subway they run into the metro like everything above ground is actually mm-hmm. filmed in dc and then they run into the metro station and it's like uh, you know the Ontario Metro, and it's like, gosh, oh, come on, trust us. You, 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 there are plenty of metro stations you could have filmed this in, but um, I, you know, it's uh, I really, really enjoyed the action overall. It's just that it was just that I sure. really think it's the overpass fight that mm-hmm. that where the camera work just was weird. It just didn't didn't feel right to me. 
Um, right. Like where they were trying, it sounds like they were just trying to give it too much and it, yeah. and it, it was just like overboard and it didn't need it. Right. But at the same time, I didn't have that feeling when I saw it on the big screen. So I do think mm. this is one of those things where it probably played a lot better on the big screen than it did. Oh, I can see it. Yep. Sitting really close yep. to my little television uh, yep. that I have. Yep. Uh, my quote unquote little television, which is like yeah. five times the size of the one I grew up with. But hey. <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah. No, that's, I get exactly what you're saying. I think that's a, I think that is something that's really interesting because, you know, sometimes things can just play better on the big screen action wise uh, just because there is so much going on or there is so much movement. And by having it at a larger screen and, you know, being farther back from it, you can pull more in. So I, I mean, I don't think that's a, invalid criticism at all you know and even though i didn't see it i i totally get what you're saying um and and so um i did have to ask you you mentioned uh anthony mackie and bringing his character in and obviously he's going to become very important to the series down the road but bringing in falcon um how did you feel like he meshed here because obviously he becomes this kind of third person in this you know strange triumvirate uh, and and how did you think he meshed with you know very established now Scarlett Johansson and and Chris Evans? Oh, I, I thought from the beginning the the chemistry with Evans was there. That first scene where you meet him, mm-hmm. and you know on your left, on your on left, your left on, yeah. it was like, don't say it, don't say it. Like it was actually funny. And then even when the way he flirted with Scarlett Johansson. And, he, you know, he's like, how you doing? You know, like, yeah, it, <laughs> I think that Anthony Mackie is just a charming actor. And I think yep. that he played really well with them. And it this was definitely one of those cases where that was really critical, because if he doesn't work with these two who do have that chemistry and have been in previous pictures together, this whole thing collapses. So casting him, whoever chose him. To be in the movie, whoever he beat out, whatever, I definitely think this was the best choice they could have made uh, mm-hmm. for for this character. Yeah, I think you said it really well. I, the fact that he is so likable in and of himself, I love the fact that he's also a veteran who's been through a lot, and you know, if, so he can relate to Cap on that level. Uh, and in many ways, I think it also helps him be somebody who could relate then to. Natasha, which is great. Um, and, you know, I mean, I think it, it, you believe it when he says, like, Captain America needs my help. There's no better reason to get back in the fight. Yep. And I think that that speaks highly for the writing for the character that you feel that that's legitimized, the portrayal of the character by the actor, and, the direction that has been happening throughout this whole time for everything to work together, because that's kind of a cheesy thing to say, but I don't find it cheesy at all that Mackie is saying that as, as the character, because no, it just feels real. It feels exactly like what this guy would say, because in many ways, and obviously this is also really important. He feels like a chip off the Captain America block. Yeah. In the sense of like his morality, who he is, what he stands for, uh, what he believes in. And and that is hugely important for where we're going to go with this character. Yes. Yes. And to their credit, they cast him and obviously they knew where they were eventually potentially going to go. And that made that even more important. And... Robert Redford, obviously, is an inspired choice. And it's still one of those things where casting Robert Redford in a political thriller that has to do with the government has obvious, obvious uh, reasons, callbacks. Redford himself is a well-established, well-respected actor. And what's interesting is I think that there's let, let me get your take on this. Do you think that audiences as a whole, especially people who are Gen X or older, who see this movie, they see Redford, and it immediately imbues more seriousness and respect for the movie because it's, oh, the classy guy is here. Oh, it's okay for mm-hmm. me to like this a lot. Do right. you think that they bought themselves some extra cred by having Redford in the movie? 
I mean, I think, you know, they um, they do because they do the same thing that Superman the movie did. You know, you, you hire somebody like Brando and you put him in the movie and people like immediately see it as having gravitas. And, you know, I think that the fact that, you know, he was in like three days of the Condor and those kind of things mm-hmm. puts him in the perfect position to play this role. And I also think what it does is that it helps you want to believe that he's a good person, right? Like, it's Robert Redford, you know? Right. I, I mean, I, I I want to believe that he's on the side of right because that's genuine, generally where he's been as a character actor for his whole life. And... And yet, then he then he makes that turn, you know, and he's he's Hydra, and it's just like it, it is kind of soul crushing. Um, and I think it it's great because he plays it so effortlessly. Yep. You know, and he I does. think that's the thing that really makes it work is that there's it it doesn't come across as Robert Redford playing a role to me. It comes across as he's playing this character who truly believes that he's doing the right thing because he, the way that Redford is playing it, this guy is totally sold out to his, his belief system and his ideology. Yep. And I think he was a, he, you said inspired. I definitely think he's an inspired choice here uh, because they're going for the 70s spy thriller and by putting him in this movie, it immediately gives you that gravitas. So yeah. I, you know, I I can't. I don't know. Did did you feel the same way, or did you have any oh, yeah, issue no, I, with I, him? Or no, not at all. I, like I was saying, like I, I think that he he immediately carries that in, and I think that one of the smartest choices they have is having him be the one to shoot the housekeeper. Mm-hmm. Uh, instead of having Winter Soldier do it for him, because it really solidifies that this guy is that far gone. Yes. I also want to give credit to bringing Gary Shandling back and having him have the Hail Hydra moment, because that winds up being a very subtle tie-in to Iron Man 2. You don't even have to yep. have seen Iron Man 2 to get what's going on, but if you've seen Iron Man 2, it actually carries some extra meaning that he's so adversarial with Tony in that one. Yep. And it makes you wish again that Iron Man two was not a dreadful mess beneath right. contempt. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but th- you know, th- there is also, and I, I always try to bring it forward because I always hate leaving this topic to the end. You know where I'm going with this music. We both loved what Brian Tyler did for the last two outings and this time is Henry Jackman, who has done plenty of, of great work. Do you think that the score is good in service of the movie? Or do you think that this score is something more? Do you think that this is... Does this hit the level of praise that we had for Iron Man 3 and that score? Yeah, I think uh, it's interesting because, yeah, the last two scores we have praised profusely, you know, because even though where we put Thor to the Dark World in our rankings, we both thought the score was phenomenal. And so, yeah, yeah Tyler had knocked it out of the park. I think one of the things that Chackman does here is that he draws really well on the Captain America themes that have been there beforehand, but he is working to make this soundtrack work for the type of movie that the directors are going for which is that spy thriller and it's discordant and it puts you off kilter in many places because of the especially the winter soldier theme that he creates which is so unnerving and i i think perfectly done now i i have to say does that make this a score that you want to listen to over and over again I don't think that's the case, but I also have to remember that soundtracks are meant to service the movie that they're in. And I think Jackman does a fantastic job of doing that and creating the soundscape in much the way that 
Zimmer does for a lot of his films, right? Like there are some of his scores where it's like you wouldn't necessarily want to listen to that outside of the movie, but I can't imagine Dunkirk without his soundtrack. You know, I can't imagine uh, now, a see, film I, like that. We'll, we'll come to blows because I do think Dunkirk is one of those ones that you can listen to outside uh, the film. I, I think a, a good Zimmer score to uh, throw out there as uh, something that's just incredibly paired with the film that you couldn't. Wow, I'm struggling to think of it, actually. Maybe Lion King. No, Lion King you listen to. But your point stands. Your point stands. I'm just quibbling over. I'm just stepping in to <laughs> defend a score that I love. There, you're, you're <laughs> no, lucky. It's you understandable. You're lucky you didn't say something about like say something like that about the Interstellar score because we would have come to blows. But I know oh, we no, agree uh, on the Interstellar Inter- score. You, we, I think we're yeah simpatico about the uh, Interstellar score, which is a masterpiece and possibly Zimmer's best score ever. So it's possibly one of the top five scores ever created. I like, would agree with stop. that, hundred percent. Full stop, yeah. right there. But the and but the thing is that you know, to your point, this score might not be one of the top five scores ever created. But Jackman's a good composer, and he's a good action composer. And I agree with you. What he comes up with on his own is good. I think that everything works in service of the movie. And I, you know, I I got the right emotional cues. Good guy here, bad guy there. Things happening. I think that all worked uh, worked really really well. Well, and I think what it, what it really and I, I want to give him more praise because I think what he does is he helps continue the tone yeah. of the movie, and and a score can either accentuate the tone that the directors are going for, or it can deviate. And right. Jackman's score accentuates the tone to which the Russo brothers here are going for, and for that I give this a hundred percent. In the sense of like, no, you you did exactly what you needed to do for the film. Whether or not I personally want to sit there and listen to it every single day as a, a piece of music, that's a different story. But for the film, I can't imagine a better score for it. And even that, I mean, it's still a good score to listen to. It's just not one that's always going to like there are some scores to which yeah. you could listen to at any moment of any day, anytime, anywhere. And then there are some that are kind of more specific to moods that you're in. And I think this is definitely more a mood score in that sense, but that doesn't make it a bad score. And so I heartily uh, just, uh, I, I, I don't want to seem in any way like I would take anything away from what Jackman did because I think, yeah, it's pivotal for the movie's success, really. So we've gotten we've gotten some solid music so far, uh, which sets us up for well the the next one in the series. I wonder if we'll get good music in that one too. I don't, I don't know. know. I Wink. don't really remember if I don't think Guardians of the Galaxy is known for oh, good music. Uh, you know, I, I you know I it's, uh, the music choices I, I I look forward to revisiting it because I I know they had some sort of soundtrack with it but you know who yeah, knows? there's something there to, uh, maybe you know. um I I wanted to ask you about this because um it's something we haven't talked about yet and I think it is pivotal to whether or not the movie works but I think a lot of this movie obviously rests on the shoulders of. Chris Evans and I think whether or not he has the ability to take this character to new heights and new depths you know and how do you feel like he does with that because we're really asking a lot of him I think as an actor because all of this hinges on whether or not he works uh you just have to look at the scene of uh him him and Peggy just when she has her her moment and she forgets him and it's like she's seeing him for the first time after he's poured out his heart and they've had this mo- like it it's literally heartbreaking what he conveys just with his eyes while he's still mm-hmm. oh yeah right oh i i did it's so good to see you like you can see him break inside and that is a definite skill and it's a terrific you know, mm-hmm. moment uh, of acting. And I really think that I, I think he yeah. sells it from the get go. Chris Great Evans point. is so 
perfectly cast as Cap. We've said that numerous times. Everybody said it numerous times. But that scene, like if you ask me about Chris Evans as Captain America, that's one of the first scenes that comes to mind for me all the time because it's mm. such a sweet scene. You see what a good soul he is and how much pain he's in because he's not in his world anymore. Mm-hmm. Like in a sense, yeah. in that scene, that is where you really get that that PTSD of his life where you can you can tell that it it is sitting there somewhere in his mind that he feels like it would have been better if he just died because he wouldn't have to do he wouldn't have to go through this and you know to pack that into that scene in a comic book movie this is one of those things where it's very difficult to wade into this sort of thing, and it's always very controversial. But when you have these arguments about Martin Scorsese saying, ah, they're just comic book movies, or Ridley Scott saying, oh, they're just a bunch of noise and they're pointless, you have to realize that, generally speaking, they're right. I know that hurts. I know that really none of us want to admit that because when we think of comic book movie, we think of something like the Winter Soldier. Sure. And if we rolled the Winter Soldier out to Ridley Scott or to Martin Scorsese, they would probably say, okay, yeah, that that is saying something. That's that's pretty good. That's a little loud and noisy and why did you need the big helicarriers and stuff, but whatever, that's just not my thing. But they would at least, I think seed the argument whereas if i took them and i put them in iron man 2 or avengers mm-hmm. or you know uh, uh, thor the dark world or um thor ragnarok or anything like that i could see why somebody who where film is their passion in their life would sit down and say what why are you even watching this i might like it but i could get why somebody would say well what are, you, what are you trying to bring to me here? Where, where's the art? Mm-hmm. Whereas with I, a soldier, we can say the art's right here. Yep. I I agree with you. I think, you know, you calling out the scene is so perfect. And I think one of the things that it really helps do is it also creates for Evans to be able to play with the confusion of the fact that there is this woman, she is still alive, that he loved, but obviously he'll never be able to be with her. And yet there are these other people that he is kind of attracted to and or in his life like Natasha or, you know, um, Agent 13, um, Sharon Carter. And, of course, we don't learn her name other than Sharon in the movie. But, you know, I think he does such a great job with playing with a character trying to figure out the moral ambiguity of this world for a person who has no moral ambiguity. Like, personally, he doesn't have that. He he, he right. truly believes in there being a right and a wrong and all these things and, and, and um, there being freedom and, and us needing that freedom and, and that, you know. And, like, I think, you know, Chris Evans doesn't necessarily get enough credit for the work that he does. And I think in this movie, it really showcases what he's capable of as an actor. But it also brings a new level and a new depth to the character of Captain America. um, Because in many ways, we kind of bring him to his lowest point in this film. Like, he's, he's lost the love of his life. He's back in a world that he doesn't really belong in. And he's not, like is this world really even worth saving? Like, you know, like all right. of these terrible questions he has to face. And it's just, it's, it's rough to watch. And, and, and Evans does a great job the whole thing. And that, that's the thing that I really want to hitch on here. Cause I, I know that we're round in third and everything, but this is the Marvel movie where I felt like some of my worldview was validated and embraced in a lot of ways. And I think that's probably, this is probably the moment where I became a huge champion of cap, the character on the whole, mm-hmm. because when he looks out and he says, this isn't freedom, this is fear. 
obviously in the context of the time it's released and where people's heads were, they're thinking much more in terms of war on terror type of stuff. Whereas Cap, and and if I may say so myself, is more looking at the principle of it, saying Nick Fury, who he's arguing with, is saying, well, it's the world that we're in, it's the threats that, that, that are out there, and Cap saying, that doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what threats you have. You're, you're sacrificing everything to battle your fear as opposed to actually looking at it and figuring out a smart way to deal with it. You're just going with this big, nasty, again, KGB-style approach to the world of you have to look at the principle of how can the system be used by somebody you don't agree with. And that's why Cap being the one to come in and basically say, no, the whole thing's going to come out root and branch everything, you know, because they say, oh, let's get rid of Hydra, but not shield and cap. No, that's not an option here. Mm -hmm. And again, it's another part of that promise of some really interesting things, because I think as we go through the series, we'll be able to debate did they really move forward with the idea of a world without shield after this movie? Is this, did things progress in our quote unquote real world? Right. The way that they would seem to after this film. You know, I like that you bring that up about this idea of, uh, you know, and we've talked around some of the thematic elements, but you know, I think the, the, scariest part of this movie to me in rewatching it was the way that it is still completely relevant in the sense that Hydra's goal was to create a world where people would sacrifice freedom for safety. Yep. I don't know if that sounds familiar to anyone, but it sure sounds familiar to me these days. And it's terrifying. And Cap being there to be the one to say, no, we don't sacrifice freedom for safety. Life is risk, and we got to take it, regardless yep. of the cost, basically. And yeah. it's, it's a beautiful, beautiful thing. And, and, and like you, I think one of the reasons that I had come out of this movie originally, and I continually come out of this movie, loving the character of Captain America is that he is willing to stand for the best of what America has always stood for. Right. Which is freedom and liberty, truth and justice for all, right? Yep. And when we failed at that, we admit their mistakes and we work to rectify it. But it's just, it, again, like, it's something very special that this movie, I think, taps into and the character taps into and I think that in in many ways, what they do best in this movie too is I think they pay homage to the reason and, and the this character was created in the first place, um, and the lineage of this character and what he's always stood for. And there's a real beauty in that. And I think that's one of the reasons this movie has been held so highly with so many fans for so many years is because we look at it and we say this is where the adaptation of a storyline for a character has really worked in a way to portray the best of this character on screen. Yep. Completely agree. Completely agree. So, I mean, I guess we're, we're getting to the point where we're going to talk ratings and rankings. Is there really any question as to where that's going to go with us? so before we get there, can I ask you one question? Because this is this is sure. something they introduce the character of Sharon Carter in this movie, mm-hmm. and obviously we have the hindsight now of knowing what they do with the character. But here in this movie, do you like the introduction, and do you feel like it's well done? So that you at the at the point where you came out of this movie, you were looking forward as to where that would go. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely, I thought I thought she was a treat. I thought that was a, a her the introduction of her character was great. The fact that Cap fell for it was great. 
Um, and the fact that, you know, she plays a role later, she's not just a throwaway character from the beginning. You find out that she's one of Fury's people. And I like that. I think it works really, really well. I'm guessing you, you feel the same way. I definitely was excited about the idea of her character. I thought it was really interesting um, and I thought it was fun. Uh, I think this is another place where Marvel found a good way to insert a new character in the same way that they had done with Hawkeye. Yes. Uh, over the way that they had tried to introduce Black Widow in Iron Man 2. Yes. So I think they had learned that lesson and they found a much more organic way to kind of work in these types of characters in. Uh, and I really appreciate that. You know, it's, it's, you can see where they've learned their lessons and, um, and like you, I thought it was a great introduction of the character and I definitely wanted more of the character as, you know, we came out of theater, which I think is always a plus, you know, when you introduce a new character. So, and, and, and having no concept of the comics and, and who she would be. At this point, I hadn't read any Brubaker's run, which I would do after this movie came out, would go and read a bunch of the Ed Brubaker comics for Captain America, which is really mainly the only comics I've read in Marvel. Uh, But um, I still was intrigued, which that's a good thing. Uh, You know what? How, How dare we almost wrap up as well and not talk about the Stingers? Because again, we're That's in double sti- we're That's double true. stinger territory. We we broke yep. that we broke that seal. We crossed that plane. We know. Okay, now it's two. Mm-hmm. I know how I feel about them, and I'll go ahead and say it, and then I'll I'll let you say your piece. The first stinger with Bucky. Uh, Bucky was the first stinger, right? No, he's no. The second Bucky one. was the last. He was the last stinger. Okay, you know what? They get jumbled up. Bucky's stinger was perfect. It had yep. to do with the film. It had to do with the character. It had emotional impact. It gave me chills. I said, oh, wow. Oh, my gosh. Because that it's a setup for Bucky's going to come back. And yep. Bucky is piecing together everything now. So mm-hmm. that's going to get really interesting. The other one which is pure setup for Age of Ultron. Man, I just... I remember the first time I saw it going, oh, wow, Scarlet Witch and Quicksilver. That's so cool. Mm-hmm. Oh, my gosh. How are they going to resolve the Quicksilver in two different franchises thing? Okay, whatever. That's fine. But why was it here? It makes it makes no sense. It, it, it doesn't mm-hmm. even add anything to Age of Ultron as we, we project further. Does it? Does this really add anything to Age of Ultron? I, there's no, no it, purpose yeah. for it. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I guess the only thing that it does is that it shows that there are other Hydra agents out there, and and in many ways, I guess you know, Age of Ultron is going to be about trying to you know, dismantle the rest of those in many of the ways that way, you know, Captain America, the first Avenger had those pieces to it. But I agree with you. It's not necessarily important and or needed here. Um, I, you know, I, I think we've talked about, and I do think that Marvel does this thing for no good reason in, in the sense that like this movie didn't need to, find a way to necessarily connect itself with anything else that was coming up. This movie already forwarded the characters yep. in incredible ways. It had already done its job in that way. There was no reason for it to do anything else. Like, it did its job. And the Bucky part is actually something that's going to further the Captain America story and the next time we see him in the sense of like the next movie, and uh, you know, this, this movie also ends with much the same way that James Bond does. It says Captain America will return. Yeah. Uh, in a very, in Avengers, you know, uh, age of Ultron. And, no, I think it just says Captain America will return. Or, doesn't it? Yeah. It, it might. I, yeah. yeah it, it, anyway. So regardless, it says that he's going to return. And so I, I think 
The Bucky one makes much more sense. And I do think the other one is just indulgent. And again, I think it's connecting in a way that's not needed. Um, and, you know, especially since the next movie is not Age of Ultron, it is Guardians of the Galaxy. And so this isn't necessarily even helping it. Like it would make even more, it would make more sense if the next movie f- that followed was age of Ultron, but it's not. Nope. So, uh, and, and, and yeah, it just, again, this, it, it's not needed in the sense that it really does anything for age of Ultron. Anyway, it's not something you couldn't already do in the movie of age of Ultron. And so, yeah, I just, I find it to be an overindulgent. In the yep. in in the Marvel sense, um, and it kind of puts a sour note on a movie that was kind of perfect, which I guess leads me to the question of the ratings, then, John, and what you would rate yeah. Captain America: The Winter Soldier. It's a five. It's an easy five. There are technical things I could quibble with, but you know, mm-hmm. glued from beginning to finish. Really great themes. Really great performances. Et cetera, et cetera. What, what else can you do? Do some mm-hmm. of the effects not age well? Yeah, I said that earlier. Sure. Some of the effects don't age well. Okay. Who cares? Um, it, it gets the job done, you know, and, and it's, mm-hmm. it's fine. I will say also, just as a final note on the way out the door, I've always ragged on this movie because I said the Potomac isn't that wide where the, the, where the, the shield headquarters is built and all of the, and we'll, we'll leave the depth of the river alone. <laughs> for the helicarriers and everything. But I realized they were actually very slick because they had the Triskelion built on what appears, it appears to be built on what is now called Roosevelt. What still exists in the real world is Roosevelt Island, which is set apart at a wider part in the river and everything like that. But then that spurred me to say, there is absolutely zero chance that uh, the Northern Virginia hipsters would allow them to build that, building on roosevelt island zero <laughs> percent chance uh so that's the most unrealistic thing about the movie uh at all except for the wings that's a and, yeah you know so it's a five um and in terms of the rankings it goes to the top of the list it's it's mm. winter soldier iron man three iron man um Oh, what did i put after that it, this is going to keep happening to me too it's uh if i remember correctly it after Iron Man, it's still Incredible Hulk, if I'm not mistaken. Is it Incredible Hulk in that slot? And then Avengers, mm-hmm. and then Thor, mm-hmm. and then Thor the Dark World, and then uh, still coming along, beaten to a pulp, bloody, barely <laughs> a part of the crew, held on by string and a prayer, Iron Man 2. Well, it'll surprise you to know that when I went back to Letterboxd, this movie was at a four and a half. I don't know why Crazy. it. So yeah, I bumped it up to a five where it belongs. Like this movie is practically it's it's like the Mary Poppins of Marvel movies. It's practically perfect in every way, in <laughs> yep. the sense that yes, there, could could we quibble about uh, this or that here and there, possibly, but like I don't know if there's a more perfect Marvel movie for me so far as we've talked about it. Like this is. Uh, better than Iron Man, and I didn't know if that was possible because Iron Man is, you know, was a really good movie, but this is just a whole different level. And I think what's interesting about it is that it sets a whole new level. It sets a benchmark that I'm not quite sure in the rewatch here if it'll ever be eclipsed. I don't know, maybe, but it's it's a very tough bar because. This movie works on levels that no other move, other Marvel movie has touched yet. Yeah, we've uh, we've definitely hit the uh, the dizzying highs. Mm-hmm. We've hit some terrifying lows. We've got some of the creamy middle here. Um, it's going to be really interesting to see because I I can honestly say that Winter Soldier has been top of the pack for me for all of these years. And so on the rewatch, I'll be interested to see if anything really can knock it down. Yeah. So for me, ratings wise, it is winter soldier, the top, uh, iron man, 
Uh, then it is Iron Man 3, Captain America, the first Avenger. Uh, That's the one I gonna... forgot to put in there. Captain America's in that slot. Yep. Oh, yeah. There yeah, you yeah. go. Then, it, then it's Hulk. So, yeah. Yep. Uh, so then, uh, yeah, for me, then it's Hulk, uh, then Avengers, uh, and then uh, it is um, Thor the Dark World, uh, Iron Man 2, and at the bottom, where it belongs, is Thor. So and Again, I know I said it last time, but it's yep. so crazy that our top is virtually identical. Uh, Iron Man 2, it, uh, Iron it, Man and Iron Man yeah. 3, fine, but that, that bottom of the pack... Like yep. we, we, it's just it's funny, fascinatingly, just a little bit different. Like it's just so it's much, great. so much weirder how it diverges. I, I will honestly, as we go forward, be even more interested to find out how the bottom of the pack starts diverging, or Ooh, whether it yeah, seems more, yep. more with it. Well, and it's going to be interesting too because you know, I mean, in all honesty, you know, by the time we get to Phase Four, the first three things in Phase Four are TV shows. You know, how does that work in the the MCU when it's all been films? So, I mean, it is going to be very interesting uh, as we move forward, and I'm excited because you know, next week we get to what is been a huge favorite for many fans of Guardians of the Galaxy. So we'll see how that holds up. But before we get there, John, uh, if people want to talk to you and, you know, maybe share their love of the Winter Soldier or anything else, where can they find you? Well, you can find me online as Kessel Junkie, K-E-S-S-E-L-J-U-N-K-I-E. And you can find me over on the Nerd Party co-hosting two shows, the first of which is called House Lights, where we look at the works of directors, uh, either... By decade, full run, if they're, you know, et cetera, et cetera, uh, we're, as, as we record this, we're finishing up our Miyazaki watch. I'd never seen anything from Studio Ghibli before, so that's a fascinating go through. And then uh, we're going to be looking at the 1990s works of Alex Proyas, uh, The Crow and Dark City. And, uh, you know, proceeding from there with some really interesting stuff. So check that out. And of course, I'm over there as well on the Nerd Party on Aggressive Negotiations, a Star Wars podcast that I think is something quite special, uh, along with my co-host, the endearing Why It's You, Matt. Matt Rushing is on that show with me that we love doing. You're welcome. You're welcome. Uh, oh, yes. <laughs> you- yes. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. <laughs> Um, you can and find we never me, had a fight. Uh, just listen to any <laughs> show where we talk about Rogue One. Um, but uh, yeah, you could find me on social media under the name Matt Rushing Zero Two. I'm all over the place, so please do follow me there and catch up with me. I'd love to hear from you. Uh, you can also find me here on the network uh, with the Six O Two Club, and we already mentioned the the whole Six O Two Club feed where we've got all of the great shows here. Uh, on the network, I'm also doing three other shows. I'm doing Literary Treks, The Orb, and Warp 5. Literary Treks is about the books and the comics of Star Trek. The Orb is about Star Trek Deep Space Nine. And Warp 5 is about Star Trek Enterprise. And then lastly, uh, I'm also on the Nerd Party Network, and that show is actually finished. It's not Aggressive Negotiations, but did a Harry Potter show called outpost with drea kaufman and we talked through every single chapter of that series one chapter at a time but as always we just gotta thank you so much for joining us avengers 